Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. This is the word of God. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Very sober text this morning. So let's pray that we'll have ears to hear. Father, we pray that you'll bless us this morning. to hear of the striking reality of this text, to understand it, to apply it, to live according to it by your ever-abounding grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Definitely a key moment in Jesus' teaching here. I'm informing us that you can be an inch from the kingdom of God, but never of it. So very close to it, but never enter it. You know, we have to ask, I mean, is it possible to grow up in a Christian home with consistent Christian parents and never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is it possible to study theology, to study scripture in the original languages and remain unregenerate, and remain unregenerate, unsaved? Is it conceivable to work and serve within the community of faith to be a fixture in the local church, to be employed by the church and remain an inch from the kingdom of heaven and never enter it? Is it possible to hear the gospel of grace preached all one's life and still Trust in your own goodness, the epitome of self-righteousness. I'm good enough to stand before God. I'm a good person. Is it possible to become gospel-hardened and seal your damnation as part 
of the visible church. Well, if a first century scribe presenting a biblical question to Jesus, who, who then in response to the Lord's answer says, good answer, beautifully said, Lord, or master, teacher, that the greatest commandment is much more than outward religious practices. And then the incarnate son of God answers the, he answers this scribe, telling him that he gave a wise, prudent answer. But says, you're not in the kingdom. If that can happen, then of course, everything else is possible that I just mentioned. Because being not far from the kingdom means you're not in the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom. Now, whether or not this man ever came to saving faith or not, we're not told. But that's not for our consideration this morning. Our consideration this morning is, are you close but not in? Do you talk a big game? Do you say all the right things? This guy did. I think more likely than not, in a group this size, there are some who fit the description. I don't know who they are. Some here, no doubt, are close to the kingdom, but not close enough. You don't want to be that. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be that person. The kingdom. This is the last week of the Lord's life, Passion Week. It's Tuesday of his last week. And three years prior to this week, Jesus came out in Galilee preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Time is fulfilled. That is... The time of waiting, as told Abraham and all the prophets, it's fulfilled. Jesus was not predicting some future event. He was announcing its arrival, the kingdom, in him. He's the king. Jesus is saying, I'm ushering in God's rule. I'm ushering in the rule of God. The rule of God is here. Here I am, king of the kingdom. Now, proof of his kingship was manifest by his power over creation. That is, he had power to calm the wind and the waves by speaking. He had power over the demonic realm. He had power over sickness and disease, healing the blind and the deaf and the lame as the prophets declared Messiah would. Power to, to raise the dead back to life, physically dead. Manifesting his power as king. Proof. He is the Christ, son of the living God. 
the royal anointed one, come from God. Not a man who became God, God who became man. Having power over all those elements, one aspect of his kingdom which is far greater than even power over physical death is is power over the realm of the human heart. Amen? Therefore, he called and still calls people to what? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, believe, trust, follow me, he says. King of the kingdom. Now, after three years of public ministry, most of which was in Upper Galilee, one day Jesus pulled his 12 disciples aside and he said, boys, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. I'm going to be killed. And I will rise the third day. They didn't get it. They didn't fully understand it. But yet he set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. And he told them again. The second time, he told them a third time. He arrived in Jerusalem, and he rode in on a donkey's colt also, as the prophet declared, surrounded by throngs of people shouting out, Hosanna in the highest, save us now. Save us. And then each evening of this, the last week, he would go back to Bethany and spend the night, probably with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and then each day he would go with his disciples back into Jerusalem, into the temple courts, teaching the crowds. But he's causing way too much of a stir, and here the religious leaders are plotting to destroy him. This is what we've seen thus far. They're furious with him because of his theology. They're furious with him because of his assaults on their man-made traditions. They hate him. And because his popularity with the people is a threat to their power and their positions. So you have religious leaders that hate one another, Sadducees, Pharisees, they hated one another, Pharisees hated the Herodians. So you have this unholy alliance that's formed that is this teaming up of enemies so as to oppose their greatest enemy, Jesus. This is what we've seen the last few weeks. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians, they tried to trap him with a vexing political question. You see that in verse 14. The Sadducees, they gathered together. They tried their hand with a question about the resurrection, something they didn't believe in. Verse 18. And Jesus, of course, very skillfully shows them their error. Needless to say, they're not doing so good up against Jesus. Amen? So here now, Matthew's account tells us, chapter 22, that when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees regarding their question about resurrection, that he silenced the Sadducees, and then they, the Pharisees, gathered together. 
That is, just as Jesus silenced demons, just as Jesus quieted a storm, literally, he muzzled the Sadducees. So then, from within the ranks of the Pharisees, once they witnessed that, um, they send this fellow, a, a scribal lawyer, Matthew also tells us, to, to test him. If you read just Mark's account, this seems like a legitimate, sincere question. And perhaps in the mind of this individual it is, but we know from Matthew's account that it was to test him again. Basic outline comes from the text itself. Notice a question is raised. Scribe a lawyer. An answer is given from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see a validation of the Lord's answer from the scribe. He validates Jesus' answer. Good job, teacher. And then we close with a solemn notice of Jesus to the scribe. Okay, so let's look at it. There's your introduction, the question, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, remember, this guy, he, he heard Jesus shut down the Sadducees. He witnessed it. Um, and again, Matthew tells us that they gathered together, they huddled up, and they send this guy. He, he approaches Jesus, no doubt on behalf of the Pharisees, and this is to test him. So the question would be, okay, what's the test? What would be the potential snare here in their attempt? Well, remember this. The Pharisees alleged that the gospel Jesus preached was contrary to the Mosaic law that Jesus preached against the law. That was their accusatory cry. Jesus speaks against the law. So let's talk about the scribes. The scribes uh, and this scribal lawyer, um, they, they dealt with all the legal minutia of the code of the Old Testament. Parsing and parsing and parsing. I mean, this is their food and drink. This is their wheelhouse. This is what they spent all of their time and effort talking about and thinking about from sunrise to sunset. So here's the consuming question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important, Jesus? Now think about this. The rabbinical teachers of the day, they tallied up 613 laws from what we know as the Old Testament. Not only laws that are straight up laws, but also interpretations that became law and became tradition. You say, where do they get 613? Well, when you take the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, um, in Hebrew, it consists of 613 letters. So naturally, there must be 613 laws in God's word. So they spent their time ranking the law. They concluded that 248 of those laws were positive, 356 were negative. So you had 248 do's and 365 do-nots, ranking the law constantly. 
This was their pastime. And they debated, okay, which laws are heavy, which laws are light. What is the weightiest law? Remember, they're thinking that Jesus taught against the law. That's their trap. Now, when we look at all the Bible, beloved, some of the imperatives, that is the commands of Scripture, some are weightier than others. Amen? I mean, even under the Old Testament civil code to Israel, certain laws incurred the death penalty. Most did not. Some were weightier. Nevertheless, let us never forget, may we never forget, Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is no doubt serious enough to warrant the death penalty when it's violated. You agree with that? R.C. Sproul, in his now classic work, The Holiness of God, said this, The slightest transgression of the slightest law that comes from God is an act of cosmic treason. End of quote. Now, the fact that all of God's commandments do not bring the death penalty, speaking under the Old Testament civil law, is an act or expression of God's mercy. You agree with that? He's holy. So, therefore, this was an act of mercy. You know, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart saying whether it's physical or, or in the heart sin, it warrants the justice of God. Yet I have, had, I have heard foolish men, foolish men, say, well, if I've committed it in my heart, I might as well commit it physically. If it's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. What's weightier as regards consequence, the physical act or the act of the mind? Thank you. Of course, there's greater consequence to the physical act. So it's a weightier matter, if you will. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke in chapter 5, verse 19 of Matthew of breaking one of the least of these commandments. So with that in mind, as regarding weightier matters of the law, Jesus gives his answer, verse 29. The most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, we stop now for a moment. We say, well, that's not an answer. That's a statement. That's a statement. So Jesus, notice he initially here refers to the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, from which I read this morning earlier. The Shema, to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the Lord's answer begins with the most loaded statement in Judaism. The definitive Old Testament statement about who God is. God is one. There is but one God, creator and judge, says Jesus. Now, this, of course, is against the backdrop of nations seething with false gods, small g. Paganism. He pulls his people out. He calls them to himself. He says, I am the one true God. You shall have no other gods. 
So that statement now is the ground for the greatest commandment. Notice verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So notice here uh, the use of heart, soul, mind, and strength, emphasizing the whole person, all of you, must love God. Every part. Now, the word love here, it's not the word phileo, which is the love of attraction. It comes from the verb agapao, which it's the love of the will, the love of the intellect, the love of purpose, the love of choice, the love of sacrifice, the love of obedience. This comes out of the first commandment of the 10, doesn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't have other gods because there are no other gods. And if you think there are other gods, you're dead wrong. You shall love the Lord your God, the one true God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Okay, so let's talk about heart, mind, soul, and strength quickly. Heart is more than the blood pumping station of your anatomy. It is the core of who we are. It's the core of our identity. It's the source of your thoughts and your actions and your words. It's our innermost being, our heart, the core of of who we are. Love him with all your heart. And then he says the soul. That's the seed of our emotions, our, our emotional energy. Remember when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, zapped of soul energy, grieving over what he was about to face, and that was the wrath of his father on the cross. And then the mind, that's the faculty of perception and reflection. Volition. Volition. Determination of the will. You know, we often hear, we'll say, you know, I have made up my mind. And let me say this. Many times Christians in our day think, you know, Christianity is all just emotional. It's about feelings. No, we don't excuse our minds from loving God. Some Christians are content remaining in spiritual kindergarten all their lives. And that's why their prayers never grow past, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. We don't want to do that. I said last week, preaching is always after the mind. The mind transforms the heart. Our thinking, that's the avenue God uses. And then our strength, that simply means physical capabilities, physical energy. You know, if we were to stop and ask, what is the most heinous of all sins? Sometimes people say, well, Murdering the image of God, right? Murder. You know, rape. And you, you can fill in the blank. There's all kinds of evil atrocities. But let me tell you this. The most, the most heinous of all sins is not loving God as we ought to love God, our creator. And you see, friends, our problem is that there is absolutely no innate love within us that desires to love God. There's nothing innate. There's nothing within us, in and of ourselves, 
to cause us to love God. We do not, okay, naturally that is, we do not want God in our thinking. We don't want him there. And as a result, our minds left to themselves will become darkened. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, or you can look at them. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to what? Acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased what? Mind. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of, this is how it manifests itself. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. That is lazy, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, they know it, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Why? Why are we like this left to ourselves? Because God is the main obstacle to my pleasure-seeking. God is the main obstacle who threatens my autonomy, my, the self-governing rule of my own heart. He's a barrier. He threatens the worship of myself. Right? And when I realize that God demands such undivided, full and total love, I attempt to recreate God in my own mind. I attempt to recreate God in my image and refuse to acknowledge that I'm made in his image, created to worship him. I say God's like this. You've heard that. And at one time, you probably thought that. And now he's a God you are not obligated to be subservient to. He's there to serve you. So the God you dredge up from your imagination, he's there to serve you. He's not the true God. He's a deaf, dumb, and blind God who's an idol. Look at Psalm 115 regarding their idols. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat, and those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You say, I say God's like this, and then you fill in the blank, you're like your God. He's deaf, dumb, and blind. He doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination. You see, the gods of man's imaginations are relativists. They're relativists. He is who you say he is. There are no absolutes. And he, this God of your finite imagination, he, he, cur- he, he, he grades on a curve. He grades on a curve. 
So, so long as you give it your best college try and appear to be a good person culturally, he'll accept you in the end. That's the lie that you create in your mind. He's an idol. He doesn't exist. Are you with me? Isaiah 45, I read from it this morning. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God, a righteous God and Savior. There's one. And let me tell you, that exclusive reality of God was as offensive 600 years before Christ as it is 2,000 years after Christ. Just as offensive. And of course, dear beloved Christian, my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, that's the challenge you face every time you articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? They look at you like you're an idiot. Do they not? Does anyone? That's how they look at me. I'll tell you that. They think I'm out of my mind. They think you're out of your mind for coming in here this morning to hear this. See, God is not a cosmic attitude. God is not a dimension within yourself that needs to be discovered. And is, when you discover him, you become a little deity. Before there was time, there was God. And in the beginning, God. This God. The only God. See, friends, everybody in the world is in one of two categories. You're either a God-hater or a God-lover. To be a Christian means to, to love the Lord. And how do we know that we love the Lord? Because you love this book. You love this book. You love God, then you love this book because this is where God has revealed himself. There is no extra biblical revelation. It's right here. It's God's word. You love the book because within it, he reveals himself to us. Redemptive history, that's what this is. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people will visit here. I probably told you this before. I'll tell you again. You don't mind, do you? You've invited friends and later on you call them up. Hey, how'd you like it? Yeah, a little bit too much. Well, what do you mean? Th this is a real answer. Too much Bible. I, I don't know what they expect, but perhaps they expect to see a movie clip. I don't know. Someone within the church was telling me this week that they went to the movies with their family, and um, during coming attractions, one, a local pastor from the city here was on screen, and he said, hey, come visit our church this summer. We're going to do... A, a movie series. We're going to do a series of movie clips and then we're going to talk. We'll slip Jesus in there somehow. Th that's what I think people are after when they say, I'm too much Bible. This isn't to puff us up. This is to remind us what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own what? Passions. 
The word isn't their passion. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into movies, myths. And wander off into myths, the scripture says. The scripture doesn't say movies, it says myths. Heartbreaking, isn't it? The more we learn of the Bible, the more, beloved, our hearts are inflamed with affection for God. That's fact. What did David cry out to the Lord? Oh, Lord, how I love your what? Law. That is, oh, how I love your word. Why? Because he is the word. God is the word. Jesus is the word. Where do we learn about the word? Not from movies. From the book. So, notice Jesus isn't finished. His statement is ground for the greatest commandment. The Lord our God is one. Notice. He says, okay, there's number one. Now, here's number two, verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Now, let's be honest. It's not always easy to love your neighbor. Amen? I know I'm not easy to love, so it goes both ways. Some Christians are hard to love especially the ones that complain all the time. That's all they do is complain. They're hard to love, but yet I'm called to love them. And we'll learn how we can grow to love one another more as we proceed this morning. But notice here, there's no command here for self-love. Did you notice that? There's no command to love yourself. Why? You don't need to be commanded to love yourself because you already do. (sighs) Don't miss that. Because there are those who say today, this means you need to work on loving yourself more. You need more self-esteem. And then I see this little girl on this dance thing on TV where they compete in dance, and she's leading this group, and they're doing a fantastic job, and they're all wearing T-shirts that have phrases on it, you know, of bullying. Nobody wants to be bullied. You know, you're a dork or a weasel or a loser, and they sing their song and rip off the shirts and throw it on the ground and stomp on it, and then the little girl who's leading the dance team is interviewed. She has little tears in her eyes, and she goes, you can't love others until you first love yourself. Okay, look, I get where she's coming from, but that's not true. You hear what I'm saying? The problem is not the absence of (sighs) self-love. This is not what it's about. We already love ourselves. Therefore, Jesus says, we're called to love others in the way you already love yourself. Who'd you care for this morning the most when you woke up? Yourself. Perhaps if you're a mother of a young one, perhaps not so. I know about you moms. Now, what about those who claim to hate themselves and live in a depressed state? Because they hate themselves. Well, the fact of the matter is, if they're depressed about hating themselves, they really love themselves. Because if they really hated themselves, they wouldn't be depressed about it. Right? 
Look at what John says in 1 John about loving God and neighbor. 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, you can't say you love God and turn around and hate his image bearers. Human beings. Especially, beloved, his redeemed saints. I've met people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. You know what they say? They don't go to church. Oh, I can't stand Christians. Guess what, pal? You're not a Christian. If you, don't, if you hate God's people, newsflash, you're not a Christian. It says right here, you're a what? You're a liar. You don't love God. He's got a problem with Christians. Well, so do I, and they have one with me. And we are taught to get over it continually. Amen? That's why it's work to love one another. Notice, look, it is a necessary connection between the love of God that we love the image bearers of God. It's that simple. Jesus lays it out clearly. Now, it is possible to love people and not love the one true God, but it's not possible that you do not love the one true God or that you love the one true God and don't love people. Does that make sense? Did I make sense of that or did I fumble that? It's possible to love people and not love the one true God, but if you love the one true God, you don't hate your brother. You can't or you don't love God. So here, Jesus weaves these two texts together. He says, this is the greatest commandment, loving God and loving our neighbor, summarizing perhaps the two, ta- the, the, the two tables of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments having to do with God, the last six summarizing our love for others. Perhaps that's what he's doing. Now, Matthew, he includes this, Matthew twenty two forty. After Jesus says this, he adds, on these two commands depend all the law and... Prophets, we have it hanging up on the, on the wall in the back. You know, Augustine famously said, love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do as you please. Now, not in a 21st century superficial way, but rather that love is so central to what the law of God is. If you truly love God, you don't need 612 other laws. Amen? If you love God... Why would you cheat? If you love God, why would you steal? If you love God, why would you commit adultery? If you love God first, that's the gauge for which you measure everything else. Okay, now notice the validation of the scribe. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, There is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, we're not certain whether or not there was a tone of sarcasm in his voice when he says this. You know, you um, uncredentialed rabbi from (coughs) Nazareth, you've spoken well. We don't know. But what we do know is that this guy gets the point. 
He gets it. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and that is that undiluted love for God is far more important than outward religious activities, i.e. burnt offerings and sacrifices. So notice loving God with our all surpasses, this guy says, he uses the same word, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Trumps it. Okay, that is the routine of burnt offerings, sacrifices. Remember what week it is here in the temple. Passover, what's he surrounded by? Burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the routine of burnt offerings, which was prescribed by God himself, he, he instructed Israel to do this, those burnt offerings and sacrifices divorced from an obedient heart is irrelevant to God. You know what they are to his nostrils? A stench. You can say all the right things. You know, there's people, Christian ease. Their whole life is Christian ease. And I always scratch my head, man, is this sincere? Maybe. See, Jesus' interest here isn't wrangling over weightier matters. The interest of our Lord is that we understand what the word means by what it says. And this man saw, too, the spiritual reality of what it means to love God. It's not merely outward religious activity. Great, huh? Notice, solemn notice. And that is about this man's true condition. Verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Okay, this scribal lawyer, this teacher of the law was not far from the kingdom. Guess what? But he's not in it. He's not in it. Not far from it means you're not in it. Why? Because what he wanted to know He wanted to know what the number one law was so he could try his best and uphold it so that God will accept him. Okay, not realizing that Jesus, the Christ, did not come ultimately to teach him as some guru, but he came to save him, to save him. And for him to submit to the king standing before him, the king of kings, the Messiah, entryway into the kingdom. He didn't see that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness sake. He didn't see that Jesus, or I should say the law is a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. Not at this point. Just work our way into heaven. For instance, if you break the law down into what we know as the golden rule, uh, love God with all my heart, well, (laughs) maybe not all. I mean, after all, I'm only human. But I'm a good person, I'm not perfect, but you know, I I try not to do to others what I, I don't want them to do to me. You hear that? You heard that? Most people are like that. 
Look, if those two truths, loving God and and loving neighbor, don't expose us for who we are, we're doomed. Doomed. Because God, what does he demand? You want to uphold the law? You uphold it perfectly, flawlessly, all your life. And there's only one stand in here that, that never broke any of the 613 commandments or 614 commandments. And it's, he's standing right before this man, Jesus. The only one who provides substitution for your sins, a failure as regards loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So let's talk about that. Notice those words, with all. With all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. That lays out the emphatic nature of comprehensive, wholehearted love all the time. Heart, mind, soul, and strength, all of it. Friends, I haven't kept that commandment for five seconds in my life. And neither have you. Anyone dare to say you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength flawlessly, perfectly? You're a liar if you are, if you think you do. Period. Okay, so where's this love come from? How how do I love God like this? This is the command. I mean, this kind of love, friends, we don't have this kind of love in and of ourselves. You can't come up with this on your own because our tendency is to do just the opposite. I just read it in Romans 1. Are you still with me? Now, Imagine the Israelites of Moses' day who originally heard these words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay, imagine, they hear it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And teach these diligently to your children. Naturally, you know what they had said? They would have said this, how? Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Decalogue And Aaron was leading the people in what? Idolatry, building a golden calf. And they strayed time and time again. Okay, friends, this is why the context of Deuteronomy is so important. Okay, here it is. This is very helpful. Deuteronomy 6, from which I read this morning. Moses at that time is 120 years old when he speaks these words. They had just spent 40 years in the wilderness. Moses is leading these rebels through the wilderness. Remember our teaching in Exodus. They're standing on the threshold of the promised land. Moses will soon die. God tells Moses, instruct my people, speak my word to them, remind them of this most important command. But before Moses preaches the Shema, he spends five chapters reminding them of what God has already done for them. Who initiated the relationship with Israel? God. He delivered them out of Egypt, revealing his character, revealing his nature at Sinai by way of the Ten Commandments, that his people might reflect his character and his nature. Why? Well, when you get to chapter 7, you realize that 
He decided to seek them out. God decided to set his love on them. We read in the scripture that he chose them. He chose to set his love on them. And when we ask the question, why? God's answer is this. Because I chose to set my love on them. That's why. You are Israel, my, the E word, elect. If you're in Christ, you're God's elect. Very clear. So think about it like this. God initiates the relationship. So think about a newborn baby. We have a newborn here. We have some fairly newborns here. And when you bring a newborn home, your newborn isn't loving. Hey, listen, your newborn doesn't love you. Your newborn doesn't know how to love you. Your newborn is absolutely needy. And they let you know they're needy. They don't know anything. They don't know how to love. And don't fool yourself. But when you bring that newborn home swaddled up, And mom, you hold that baby to your breast and you feed that baby and you change that baby and you cuddle that baby and you kiss that baby, sing to that baby, speak to that baby. That baby begins to what? Love you back. Love in your face, mom. Love in your face, dad. You initiated the love relationship. You cared for them with love. So the newborn begins to reciprocate love for you who loved them first. My, my, my daughter sent me a photo that she's holding on to. I didn't know she had on Father's Day. I was out visiting my folks in another part of the country, so she took a photo of the photo and she's about four years old. I'm sitting on the floor. My legs are stretched out. She's laying in my lap. And she, the expression on her face is one of absolute comfort, trust, and security. I have another photo with my son, who is also four years old. And at the time, that time in my life, I was working out of town four, five, six days a week. And I would come home on, on Friday night, and he would bust out the door and run to me. And we have a photo where he's sitting next to me with expressions on his face of joyful delight as we were just getting ready to play Legos, his favorite pastime, and he's just anticipating with love this time that we share together. All expressions of reciprocated love. We don't initiate this, friends. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. He loved the unlovely ones. You're unlovely, people. I'm unlovely in and of myself. God chose to set his love on you. You you didn't earn it. Israel didn't earn it. You can't earn it. Look, when I sit back and reflect on the fact that my sin My helplessness was revealed to me by the grace of God, by way of the gospel. Look, 
I, I learned, and this is just from the scripture, I learned, oh, he saved me. Not because of works done by me in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on me richly through Jesus Christ, my Savior. Did I have anything to do with that? No. When I learn that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, in which I once walked, Ephesians 2, following the course of this world, following the, the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, when I realized that during that time, God revealed his love to me. He loved me in such a way he gave his only son for me to die in my place, to give me eternal life, wash me of my sins. I experienced new life in Christ. I have union with Christ. I have been adopted by God in Christ, and nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. That's love. That's his love shown to me, and I reciprocate by loving him back. With all that I am. Which parts of me did he redeem? All of me. Mind, heart, soul, strength. So he calls for everything back, and he enables me to, to comprehensively um, love him because his comprehensive love for me awakened what there was nothing there to love him with. He put it in me and enables me to love him back. You get it? When we're called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, he enables us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But we have to constantly be reminded of his love for us. So question for application. What's the state of your love for God right now? What's the temperature of your love for God? Okay, is it a burning desire? You can't wait to get to his word. You love his word. You care about what he cares about. You grieve over what he grieves about. Is it that? Maybe it's not what it once was. Oh, I used to be like that. I, used, I couldn't wait to get into the word. And now I don't even know where it is. Until Sunday, of course. Because I have to look good at church. Is it mildly warm, on again, off again, lukewarm, tepid, or cold? Now, given that our love for God, beloved, is completely responsive to his love for us, it's reciprocal, it will be limited by your knowledge of his love for you as communicated through what? This book. So the question for us is, do you as a priority put yourself in the place that God has set his love for you? That is his means of grace for you. And that is through his word. Do, do you go to it? Do you see coming to church as a priority to sit under it? Because this is where God's love for you is communicated. 
And then you respond to this. And if you stay away from this, that love grows what? Cold. Are you purposefully placing yourself in that place or are you depriving yourself of the communication of God's love for you? Well, I'm here, aren't I? Well, that doesn't necessarily, beloved, exhibit great affection for God because perhaps you just don't want to be hassled getting a phone call. Hey, where are you, brother? Right? You can know all the, all the right answers. You can speak Christian ease. You know all the right things to say. This guy knew what to say. This guy knew the truth. So pre- presenting God with a few moments of worship in church once a week or, or once a month for some of y'all while ignoring God the rest of my life, home, work, recreation, you know, giving, you know, the minimal head nod to God. Yeah, I love you. You'll dry up. You'll wither. So to, when we read, uh, I love God, do I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Look, he calls for 100% love like that of all of you all the time. Guess what? You can't do it. So the more I sin under the gospel of grace and learn about his love for me, I'm able to reciprocate that love for him. Amen. Notice what happens if we don't. The church of Ephesus, known at one time for its what? Love. Jesus analyzes the seven churches of Asia Minor. He said this. Look at it. Revelation 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Okay, look, you know your doctrine. You know what's true. You know what's a lie. You got that going for you. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and that you may not grow weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The greatest thing the human heart is capable of, beloved, is loving God. And Jesus says the church of Ephesus had abandoned that. Okay, notice now, he doesn't leave them alone. He provides a remedy. Okay, if this is you and there are seasons of our lives that include all of us, amen? So here's the remedy for all of us. Okay, notice what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he says, remember, repent, and repeat the things you did at first. Remember how you used to run to sit under the word. Change your thinking and repeat what you did at first. Amen? Pretty simple. Alexander McLaren says this. I'm done in three minutes. The abiding truth is this. Conviction not acted on, convictions not acted on die. Truths not follow, fade. Lingering can become a habit where we can either go in or further away. 
So Jesus' words of verse 34, notice they're full of promise, but full of warning. You're not far from the kingdom of God. This guy's still outside the kingdom. So that tells us it's frighteningly possible to be an inch from the goal line and never enter the end zone. Dangerous. See, friends, I close with this. Here's the upshot. Here's the encouragement. Once we look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, once we look to Jesus Christ alone as the only ground of our righteousness before Almighty God, suddenly we find ourselves beginning to love him in return. Amen? When you understand his love, you love him in return. We see that his grace and his mercy in our lives showered upon us, we actually begin to love his law, meaning his word. We grow to love his word, and we seek to obey his word. We start to see our neighbors in a new light. We start to see our brothers and sisters hard to love in a new light. Amen? And this reciprocated love is empowered by his grace to actually show love to God and our neighbor. Perfectly? Never. Not until you get to heaven. But truly and really. So friends, all that to say, where God's love is expressed, that is his word, run to him. Immerse yourself in the truth. I don't care if you feel like it or not. Be reminded of his love and pretty soon you'll see love for him flowing up once again. Verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Can you imagine? Stumped. This is the last time anyone from the Sanhedrin will attempt to trip him up. It's Tuesday of the week. By Friday, Jesus will be hanging from a Roman cross expressing his love for you. Expressing his love for you on Friday and all who will ever believe the king of the kingdom who says, repent of your little kingdoms and enter into mine. Have you? Have you? Are you in it? Have you called on Jesus to save you? If you have, rest in him, continue to run to him. If you haven't, today's the day. Wait no longer. Because being an inch from the kingdom means you're not in the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this hour. Once again, your word searches our hearts. Uh, We pray that you would have your way with us. And even now, Lord, by your spirit, to, to anyone in our midst who may be very near the kingdom but still outside of it, Lord, we ask that you would draw them irresistibly by your grace to the heart of the kingdom for Jesus' sake. And for the saints, Lord, help us to understand more of your love for us as we rest in that love and that that love be reciprocated through us in obedience for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.